The passage this morning is from Luke chapter 24, verse 13. You can find it in your bulletin. You can read along in your own Bibles. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, he, that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this, your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you for your son, Christ Jesus, and his resurrection from the dead and from the grave. And we ask this morning, as we look at your word, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would glorify you through your Son, Christ Jesus, that you would be honored and praised. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of these things. Amen. 
This morning, as we consider this text, I have to say that I find the beginning of Jesus' response in verse 25 to be both intriguing, interesting, and to be extremely helpful in understanding this portion of the passage. You see what he says in response to these men in verse 25. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. See, in Jesus' response to these two men who are on the road to Emmaus, he offers this critique. It's a rebuke. It probably was a stinging rebuke. It might have hurt a little bit as the men heard him speak these words. But as Jesus offers this rebuke, he does so with two distinct categories of rebuke. You see it there. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, those two categories are more obvious in the original language, two categories that are representing the mind and the heart. When Jesus says, oh, foolish ones, one commentator rightly put it that this phrase might have been better translated, oh, you slow of mind and slow of heart. Oh, you slow of mind and slow of heart. The phrase that is translated foolish ones might be better translated thoughtless men. Men who are not thinking, not using your minds. The critique is both a cognitive one and a heart critique that Jesus offers to the men on the road to Emmaus. This morning, as we look at this passage, we will be talking about both mind and heart. So I'm going to draw my picture This is a person's head, that's the mind, and heart. Mind and heart are the critique that Jesus offers, and also the mind and heart will help us frame the passage that we read this morning. As we look at the passage, the context of mind and heart, we'll actually begin to see and make sense of what Jesus is saying in response to these men, how these men are reacting, and we will also be able to diagnose some of the same issues in our own hearts. So this morning we look in context of mind and heart. Now let me tell you something. The pre-modern Jewish conception of mind and heart is a little bit different than our modern conception of both mind and heart. The mind is probably the more similar category for the Jewish thinking. The mind is where the the cognition happens. It's where we rationalize. It's where we have logic and reasoning. And that's very similar to the way we think of our minds today. But the heart was very different for the pre-modern thinker. The heart was not simply the place where emotion came from, though emotion did come from the heart. The heart was considered the seat of the soul. It was considered where the authentic self was found. It is from the heart that conviction came and passion. It is where we found our real selves apart from body, apart from everything that might be found in the mind. That was the understanding of the heart. It is the understanding that Jesus addresses as he says to these men, you who are slow of mind and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And the question that we're going to wrestle with this morning is a very simple question. It'll help us understand the passage. What is the relationship then between mind and heart? What is the relationship between mind and heart? Why does Jesus critique both mind and heart here? 
What is the relationship between the two? And then how does that apply to us today? What is the relationship between mind and heart? You probably noticed the passage begins very simply. We find two men in verse 13 who are on the road to Emmaus. It begins in verse 13 by saying two of them. And and you probably need to know that them is a reference to the followers of Christ. From the end of chapter 23 through all of chapter 24, we get the third person pronoun them and they referring to the followers of Christ. We have seen them all along the way. And so now two of them, that is two followers of Christ, are now on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. You'll remember that Christ was crucified on Friday night. The Sabbath had passed, and now the events of Luke chapter 24 are taking place on Sunday morning. Reading the text correctly, you will see that Christ has resurrected, that the women have arrived either just before sunrise or immediately after sunrise. The stone has been rolled away. There's no body to be found. The disciples have come. And now these two followers of Christ begin making the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I have to say from the outset, it doesn't make sense to me. If I was in Jerusalem and all of these events have transpired, I would have postponed my trip to Emmaus. I would have stuck around for another day or two to see what happened. But these men, they leave sometime late Sunday morning, maybe Sunday afternoon, to make the seven-mile journey to Emmaus. Emmaus is southeast of Jerusalem. And there they are on the road as they walked, they talked about the events that have now unfolded before their eyes. You can see there's discouragement, sadness, frustration, maybe bitterness in their conversation. And as they're walking, they are greeted by one stranger, at least a stranger to them. What this was like to encounter the resurrected Jesus, I'm not sure. We find this being the case, though, in a number of instances where Jesus reveals himself to his followers who at first do not recognize him. I think one thing it does tell us is after Jesus is resurrected, he reveals himself when he wills and how he wills to whom he wills. And we see that this morning in the passage. And so here is Jesus on the road with the two men. And in verse 17, Jesus essentially says to them, Hey, what you talking about? What's the scuttlebutt? What's the word on the street? What are you speaking about? And they answer him in the following verses. So let me ask you a question. As you look at the response of these two men to Jesus, and you look at how Luke describes it, do you find that it is more a head answer or a heart answer? Is the description dealing more with the head or more with the heart? If you said both, you'd be right. There are both head elements and heart elements to the conversation that's going on. There is a transmission of facts from verse 17 and forward, that is a, a head issue. You see, the, the disciples, the two followers of Christ, they say to him, listen, Jesus was uh, a mighty in word indeed, a man from Nazareth. He was betrayed by the chief priests. He was crucified. His body could not be found. These things happened this morning. They transmit these facts to the man Jesus on the road. 
but you also see a number of descriptions that make it obvious to us that there's something going on in their hearts. Verse 17 says, they were sad. Verse 21, in the midst of these facts, relaying the facts to Jesus, they pause for a second and they say, for we had hoped that he was the one to deliver Israel. So we see in the midst of the conversation, both head and heart issues, again to which Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus rebuked to them again, dealing with head and heart. Now what follows then is Jesus' response to their issues on the road, and I want you to see that he begins by addressing the head, okay? So this is where we begin. He begins by addressing the head. Their thinking, their reasoning, their logic. I want to begin by saying I believe this is one of the weaknesses in modern Christianity. See, it's very popular and prevalent in modern Christian literature, preaching, and lingo within Christian circles that the heart is the emphasis and the mind is almost to be neglected. That the mind is a detriment to the Christian walk. That the mind is in contradiction to the heart. That the mind ought to be neglected. You see, I think then we have created a a mindless and thoughtless droves of Christians who have no concept of what they believe, but only a sense of conviction that they indeed believe it, whatever it is that they believe, okay? As Horatius Bonar once put it, it is forgotten that the first sin was just this, a quest for experience without revelation, a quest for experience without revelation. That's what he's saying. It's a, a quest for an engaging of the heart without an engaging of the mind, according to the revelation of God. Now you see, this is where Jesus begins in verse 26. In verse 26, as he's speaking, he says to the men, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see what Jesus begins by doing as he meets these confused men on the road who are both sad and bitter and frustrated at this moment, he begins first of all by explaining to them the scriptures. He spoke to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures and he walks through the word of God from the beginning the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and he walks through the, those books and, and through the history books and the Psalms and the Proverbs and he goes into the prophets and he explains to them the word of God by the mouth of the prophets concerning the Messiah. He essentially begins by enlightening their minds that they might see, hear, and understand according to the word of God all that has been revealed about the Messiah. Can you imagine the conversation on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus? This stranger that they've encountered on the road begins to open their minds to the Word of God and they begin to comprehend all that has been written concerning the Messiah. 
J.I. Packer, who many of you know, J.I. Packer has written extensively on this relationship between the head and the heart. And Packer was speaking about how the, the Puritans, the Puritans for all the good and the bad of the Puritans, the Puritans got this right when they talked about the relationship between the head and the heart. Listen to what he said. He said it was a Puritan maxim that all grace enters by the understanding. It follows that every man's first duty in relation to the Word of God is to understand it. And every preacher's first duty is to explain it. The only way to the heart that he is authorized to take runs via the head. So the minister who does not make it his prime business to teach the Word of God does not do his job. And the sermon, which whatever else it may be, is not a didactic exposition of Scripture, is not worthy of the name sermon. Okay? So what you, what you heard in Jesus' words and in J.I. Packer's words there is, is very simple. Okay? He spoke about this, and this is what we see Jesus doing. The relationship between head and heart this morning is that the heart is accessed through the head. That's what Jesus is doing in verse 26 and 27. He, he is sharing a transfer of information concerning the Word of God. He's stating facts. He's sharing the details. He is communicating to them the Word of the prophets concerning the Messiah, the Savior. Right? And, and through the mind, the Spirit of God begins to work in the heart. Now, if you're paying attention to what Jesus is doing, and if you heard what J.F. Packer just said, it's not simply through rote facts or some sort of random set of details, in Jesus' case, and according to all that we see in Scripture, it is through the Word of God, okay, so this is my Bible, it is through the Word of God that wisdom and knowledge is gained about the Messiah, that the understanding in the mind begins to happen, and that the heart is accessed, okay? This is the, the biblical pattern. If ever there was a recipe for salvation, discipleship and, and glorifying God. This was the recipe. Now, don't hear me saying there's a recipe, okay? I'm not saying it's as simple as this, but I am saying this is the biblical pattern unto salvation through which God works to bring about his own glory. And it is beautiful, okay? So this is what we, we begin seeing in this passage. This is why the Apostle Paul will say to the Romans that, that faith, okay, faith is seated in the heart. Faith and belief is in the heart. We read about that often. Faith comes through hearing. That's the man's ear. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of God. All right? That's why Paul says that. It's a logical process from the Word of God to the hearing, to the understanding, unto the heart where faith and belief are happening and taking place. That is why Jesus begins by first expanding or expounding upon the Scriptures that these two men on the road to Emmaus might understand all that has been proclaimed about the Messiah. And that then by understanding the Spirit of God might begin a work in their hearts. Okay? Now listen, this, this frames so much of what we do here at this church. Okay? It frames our understanding of our ministries, of the preaching of God's word. It frames our understanding of the, our work with children and youth. All right? I'll give you one example. We've been talking about this catechism club the last two months, right? And if you've, if you've never, if that's a strange concept to you, you're probably saying, what in the world are they talking about? That's so weird. Catechism club, all right? 
And let me just put in a plug. We're ha- it's happening again tonight, all right? The parenting class and the catechism club. If you haven't come, come anyway. You don't have to be a parent. You just have to come, all right? But we've been doing this catechism club, and catechism questions are a series of questions and answers uh, that are used to um, direct us towards biblical understanding and biblical knowledge, that we would have a simple way, especially for children, to recall biblical information, that it would be rooted deep in our hearts, okay? So I thought about this this morning. This is maybe a dangerous thing to do. I think it'll work, though. Let me give you an example. Let me ask the children, okay? Children, who made you? You can say it out loud. Children, who made you? God. Say it louder, okay? Children... What else did God make? God made all things. Say it loud, okay? Now we got to say the third one real loud. Children, why did God make you in all things? Yeah, for his own glory. Say it loud. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Okay, that's how catechism questions work. Thank you, children. No one could ever say that this isn't an interactive process. It is, Okay. Why did God make you and all things for his own glory? Why do we do that? Why spend the time? I mean, my kids have heard that a thousand times. They say it in their sleep. Why do we do that? We do that very simply because faith comes through hearing and hearing comes through the word of God, right? We have a responsibility at this moment to continue to communicate to our children scriptural truths that their minds might be filled. Not simply that their minds might be filled, but through the filling of their minds that they might have understanding that as understanding comes to fruition or to completeness, the Spirit of God might work in the heart to convict them of their sin and convince them of the righteousness of Christ, okay? This is how it happens in Scripture. This is how it happens in Scripture, okay? Now, I think scandalously in the church today, this idea is often being rejected, okay? Because the emphasis is on the heart and we view the mind to be the detriment to the heart. It's taking away. As if sincerity in the heart is lost if we have precision in our theology or in our doctrine or our conviction. Okay, That's not true. It's not the case. And there is a lot of collateral damage because of this thinking. There are plenty of 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who said a prayer Right, That was their conception of salvation. They said a prayer, and now they're empty in their understanding of who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done for them. Okay? They're empty in their worship, glory, and honor of the Lord Jesus because of this. All right? That's an emphasis on the heart at the detriment of the mind. It's not what we see happening in the passage this morning. Now, listen, as we continue reading this passage, it's not as if only the head is emphasized in this text. As we continue reading on, you you probably notice that from verse 17 through verse 26 is really the articulation of the the facts, the details. They are articulated not only by the two men to Jesus, but then he begins uh, giving back to them the truth of Scripture, according to the prophets, concerning uh, the Messiah. And if you're wondering, what does that look like? How is Jesus the focus, the center of all of the scriptures? That's next week. We're going to talk about next week, so come back next week, all right? That's what we'll focus on the end of chapter 24. But moving from the articulation of the facts from the Word of God to the hearing of the men who then comprehend by the work of the Spirit, then given the gift of faith, we begin to see in this passage then what's happening 
in the heart of these men after they receive the revelation of God, after the word of God is shared with them. And we begin seeing it in verse 28. So that's the first, first part. I'm going to write down verse 28. What happens in verse 28? It's very simple. They get to the village of Emmaus. The text says that Jesus, it seemed like he was going to continue going on. So he's like, good to meet you. Great conversation. We're moving on. And what happens? The men say, great, nice to meet you. Hopefully we'll see you again. That's not what happens, right? The passage says instead that they urged him. And really, it's an interesting word. It's a word that means to plead, um, to beg. They begged him to remain with with them, okay? You can literally imagine these men, as Jesus seems like he's going to leave, these men saying, please don't leave. You can't leave. We, we, We want to continue to hear what you have to say concerning the prophets and the Messiah and, and everything concerning the fulfillment of these things in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need you. This is a, it's a beautiful picture of, of what begins to happen in the heart of the, uh, when the Spirit of God is at work. Those who receive the Word of God, who hear it, comprehend, and begin to have faith in the Lord Jesus, they desire to be near to Him. They're being drawn to Him. They're wooed. They're, they feel convicted they must be closer to him and they have to hear it's it's like we come and we sing four songs on a sunday morning you say i i need to sing the fifth song i need a sixth song read three chapters of luke i need to read the fourth chapter i i can't have enough i need more that's what's happening in the hearts of these men in verse 28 as they urge the lord jesus to remain with them And as we continue reading another instance where we see a work that has begun in their hearts, in verse 32, you probably recognize in verse 32, they actually use the word heart. They say this in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's one of the pivotal verses of this chapter, okay? It's a beautiful thing. The Greek word that's used there for burning is a, is a particular word, and it doesn't mean simply to burn. It actually means to begin burning. It is the kindling or the stoking of a fire. You know how you start a fire and you, you put the kindling in there and you blow on it? That's the, it's the description of what they're using. They're saying, when he opened the scriptures to us, our hearts began to burn within us. We sensed a fire, a burning. Isn't this a beautiful thing? This is the evidence of the work of the Spirit in their hearts as they receive the Word of God, and they begin to have a burning in their hearts. Now let me say briefly one thing, maybe two things. Okay, First of all, this is, um, this is what I pray for every Sunday. Okay, Having the privilege of delivering the Word of God, the prayer is very simple. God, enable me to clearly deliver the Word and then work by your Spirit to burn in the hearts of the people. That at least someone, hopefully everyone, would walk away Sunday morning saying, my heart burning within me. As the Scriptures were opened up and explained, right? And as I saw clearly the Savior, the Messiah, okay? I, a few weeks ago, actually it was a few months ago, my wife said to me, you've got to read this article by John Piper about preaching. And I don't remember the whole article, but I remember this one beautiful analogy. He said, every week I go into the mine, down into the mine, a gold mine, 
And that's the word of God. And every week I'm mining the gold and I'm chipping away at it. And every Sunday I'm coming up out of the mine and I'm holding up the nugget of gold that I found and I'm showing it to the people of God that they might also with me behold the beauty of the word of God. That they might see the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? That's a wonderful privilege. It's the best job in the world, okay? And the hope is as the gold is held up to the people of God, that within us our hearts might burn, that we might be drawn to him, okay? This is, this is what we should be praying for. We talked about the kids who are doing catechism questions every Sunday evening. We should be praying for the kids who are doing catechism questions that by the end of these eight weeks, their hearts will be burning within them. That they would desire to be near the Lord Jesus. That they could have nothing else. That all they want is Him. If you're not praying for it, we need to be praying for it. Okay, That's what we ought to be praying for. There's a description in this passage of the work of the Spirit. Okay, This is the second point. The work of the Spirit through the Word of God and the hearing of the men. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 6. That your heart would be committed... I'm going to get it wrong, so I'm just going to read it. Romans 6. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That you've become obedient through the heart to the standard of teaching that you were committed. There it is. It's a beautiful way of laying it out. Through the word of God and the hearing of men that they might comprehend and be committed to the word of God through that, the Spirit of God works in the heart of men to give them faith and belief that these things might begin to take place that we read in this passage this morning. Let me add one other thought about the heart, and then we're almost done here, okay? Did you notice when these men first realized that this is Jesus? Did you see it? It was at the end of the passage. What was happening? They were eating supper together, weren't they? But this is no ordinary supper. If you're reading it and you've, you've been you've read the Bible before or often, you probably were saying, man, that sounds like something I know, okay? This sounds eerily similar to something I've heard before. It sounds like the Lord's Supper, doesn't it, okay? We've get, we, all the gospel writers record this. Paul recounts it in 1 Corinthians. It sounds exactly like this. What does it say? It says the Lord Jesus, after he had blessed the food, he broke the bread and he gave it to them, okay? It's the exact pattern of the Lord's Supper, What's going on there? Okay, it's no ordinary meal they ate with the Lord Jesus. It's no accident of Luke as he records these events. We are meant to understand that the Lord Jesus, as he eats dinner with these two men in Emmaus, that he essentially with them celebrated the Lord's Supper. That he did these things, and did you notice at that moment as they participated in the Lord's Supper, their eyes were open. Boom. Beautiful. Okay, why do I say that? Because the sacraments are very different than the communication of knowledge, right? There's, there's the preaching of God's word, the expounding upon the word of God. Through, through wisdom and understanding into the ears of men, they begin to comprehend. But the sacraments are very different. We don't sit here and say, all right, I'm going to take the Lord's Supper and two elements plus three, you know, uh, whatever we do equals, it's not a mathematical equation. That's not the way the Lord's Supper works, Okay. The Lord's Supper is described as being mysterious. It is a means of grace. It is communication to the heart by the Spirit of God. It's a, it's a very mysterious process, but it strengthens the believer. 
you see this, this, here's a, you know, the sacrament in this passage is brought into the equation by the Spirit after the hearing of the Word. These things are brought together and the eyes of these two men are opened and they see the Lord Jesus. Isn't it beautiful? All of this comes together and represents the work in the heart that is being done by the Spirit. And this is the normative way the Spirit of God works. Through the proclamation of the word by the hearing. As people comprehend, the Spirit of God works in their hearts. They have faith. Their hearts burn. They desire to be near Jesus. And the means of grace are are used to strengthen their hearts that they might follow faithfully the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It's a beautiful thing. Now let me ask you just one last question. Head, heart, what is the result? This isn't the primary thrust of this passage, so let me just say it briefly. The, the result that we see when these things come together is there's action. There is some sort of action. It always happens. We talk about what is the action that happens when we're saved, when these things work in our hearts. The action is very simple. We've got a few. Uh, we flee. We flee from sin. We cling to the cross or cling to Christ. We glorify God. We have a desire to share with others. We're brimming over, right? This is the natural outpouring of if, if we're saved and if these things are being worked in our hearts, this burning, it can't be contained within our hearts. It's a burning that has to flow out. It has to flow over. Okay, so we begin to see action. Do you see the action that these men take? Two particular actions at the end of the chapter. The end of the chapter, it says um, in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. You see what they did? Think about this. They, they now have a message that became more important to them than even their own well-being. And you know how we know? We know because it would be absolutely insane to make the, Jerusalem back to, the journey back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night. But that's exactly what they did. Okay? Because... We have the events of Sunday morning. We have the journey to Emmaus. The seven-mile journey took probably like three or four hours. They get to Emmaus. They say to Jesus, the day is spent. Stay with us and have dinner. They have dinner. Jesus is revealed to them. Jesus vanishes. And now after the sun has set, at some point in the night, it says at that very hour, they got up and they made the journey back to Jerusalem. Bad idea. Bad idea unless there's something more important to you than your own well-being, okay? They made the decision. We're going back to Jerusalem. We got a message to share. And then what did they do? They went to the 11, and it says in verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. You see how in in their hearts, this poured over in their lives, and they just had to go. They had to go that very hour to tell those followers of the Lord Jesus Christ what had happened. Let me end with this, okay? This is an explanation of this passage. You might be wondering, well, what does this mean for me? Let me briefly explain. This biblical process, you have to ask yourself two questions. Where am I in this process? And where am I to be involved in this process? Very simple. Where am I in this process? Where am I to be involved in this process, okay? So first of all, we often make the mistake of finding ourselves where we shouldn't be in the process. Let me give you a few examples, okay? If you're not a believer, you may think, and this is the message of many Christians, you may think that you have to go down here to the action part and start doing things, okay? If I want to be a Christian, I've really got to start doing the good works, right? 
I got to start living like a Christian. That's where I begin. It's not where you begin. Let me tell you, it's not where you begin. You begin here with the word of God through hearing and comprehending that the spirit of God might work in the heart, okay? There are many of us who for ourselves or usually more for a loved one, we say, you know what? I want them to be saved. I got to start with the heart. And so we do that thing where we, we, we get them to say the prayer or we get them to do, you know, uh, whatever we want them to do, to kind of conform. We believe that this will make them a Christian if we can change the heart. We can't change hearts. We don't change hearts. We have no power to do that. If you ever figure out how to change a heart, let me know, okay? I'd love to know how to change a heart. We don't do that. We can't. You, you want for someone to come in faith, Lord Jesus Christ, begin with the word of God Pray that the Spirit works in their hearts, that they might comprehend, okay? That, that's where we go. And listen, others, others of us, we have, we have begun to fill our heads with knowledge and understanding concerning the Word of God, and we never move past that. That's also a problem, okay? If you've been camping out for 20 years only getting knowledge and understanding, but you have no conviction, there's no burning in your heart, you also have a problem. You need to be praying for the Spirit of God to begin a work in your heart, Okay? So we need to find where we're at on this chart. We also need to ask, where are we to be responsible? What is our responsibility here? We ought to be sharing the word. That's first. If you're, if you're not, start memorizing scripture. Share it with people you know, right? The word of God is powerful. It is, it is through the word that he works to convict the heart. Through the word. Through no other means. Through the word, Okay? We need to be praying. If you're not praying for your unsaved relatives, for your children, for your neighbors, for your community, you need to be praying. And then finally, if you're in Christ, there, sh- there should be some fruit. You-, you can't be in Christ and have no change. If you're in Christ, Jesus says, those who love me will, um, will do what I command, Right? Um, if you're in Christ, there, there ought to be an outward change, okay? So ask yourself, have I seen an outward change? Is there action and activity that comes forth from the change of heart, all right? That's, that's this morning's passage. Listen, next week, we're going to the end of chapter 24. Last week in Luke, more than a year and a half later, last week in Luke, and we will talk about next week what is the gospel because Jesus will explain it clearly what is the gospel, and you might be surprised what Jesus has to say. But this morning, ask yourself the question, where am I and where am I responsible? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come to pay for our sins. And we praise you, our Lord, our God, our Father. We praise you for you have redeemed us. And you have saved us by your own blood, through the breaking of your own body. We have become gloriously righteous. And you have taken on our sin, suffered death and the grave, And the wrath of God the Father as the payment against all unrighteousness that you might be our sin and that we might be your righteousness. And so we ask this morning that you would show us yourself through your word, 
that you would burden our hearts, that they would burn within us, that we would desire more of you, and that as your spirit works in our hearts, that we in turn would glorify you, that we would flee from sin, that we would, we would hate darkness, and we would love the light and righteousness, and we would desire all the days of our life to worship you, our Lord and our God. We thank you this morning, and we glorify your holy name. It is in that name that we pray all these things. Amen.